Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben, on this fine spring day? I'm doing pretty good. Feeling fine. Yourself? Yeah, feeling feeling good. Getting lots of stuff done. Recording an episode. Mm-hmm. That always makes my days go really well. Yeah. Yeah. What are we watching? Today, Sarah, we are watching Captive Wild Woman from 1943. Can she be captive and wild at the same time? Like, isn't once, like, a wild animal is taken captive, it's no longer wild? I mean, I think maybe she hasn't, you know, been trained or domesticated yet. Ah, okay. She's still in that, still in that stage where, you know, the animal's all restless and unhappy. And pacing back and forth. Right. Okay. Well, tell us what it's about, I guess. So, to set the scene for the creation of this piece of what is surely cinematic art, for the first time since 1931, Universal Pictures had a real competitor in the horror genre. Yeah. Sure, others had tried in the past, but none to the degree that RKO had succeeded with cat people, Mm -hmm. um, or managed to follow it up with sustained successes after that. You know, we've seen, like, Paramount put out a good horror movie, or Warner Brothers put out a good horror movie, but they don't, they don't stick with it. Or you have, like, sustained efforts from Monogram or Columbia, but they're never really, like, good. (laughs) So they're not really a threat. Yeah, yeah. So Universal knew they had to respond to RKO's success. And what better way to take on the understated and subtle that was in Cat People and just do all the lurid and crazy things that the marketing of that movie had suggested? That is one way to respond. I mean, it it fits the typical mold of, like, if you want to compete with someone, do what they did, but bigger and better. But, like, the point of Cat People is that it was successful because it didn't do the thing? Yeah. I guess? Exactly. Anyways, Val... Someone missed the point here. Yes. Val Luton had promised people a cat woman, so Universal's B-unit producer Ben Pivar would do him one better and give audiences a gorilla woman. Great. The screenplay for Captive Wild Woman comes to us from the writers of The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb. Well, Mummy's Tomb is good. And the film's direction comes to us from Edward Dimitrik. The Canadian director uh, had previously helmed the horror movie The Devil Commands for Columbia in 1941. That one was quite fun. Mm-hmm. Since then, he had done a stint at RKO, directing Falcon movies, Uh, And propaganda films like Hitler's Children. Okay. And that's an anti-Hitler youth movie. Clearly. He was on loan from RKO for this picture, so perhaps Pivar thought that some of the Tourneur magic had rubbed off on Dimitrik while he was working there. After Captive Wild Woman, Dimitrik would direct the immensely successful propaganda film Behind the Rising Sun for RKO, which would see him promoted to A-pictures after that like the World War II movie Back to Bataan in 1945 and the film noir Crossfire in 1947. In 1947, he was named as one of the Hollywood Ten, 
those individuals who refused to testify to the House Un-American Activities Committee and were subsequently blacklisted from the industry. They were convicted for contempt of Congress and sentenced to prison time, and Dimitrik was fired from RKO. Instead of doing prison time, he fled to the UK and made films there until his passport ran out, and then he was sent back to the US and imprisoned. While in prison, he decided that he'd been duped, and the Communist Party wasn't worth jail time, exile, and the end of his career, and he testified and named names. His career was rehabilitated, and in 1952, he directed The Kane Mutiny, which was a box office and critical hit. His final film was He Is My Brother in 1976. Did Dimitri have any, like, pushback from people for testifying? Not... Not in that climate at that time. Okay. I think later, you know, once you get into the 60s and 70s, it was like, ah, you're the traitor who sold everyone out. But at the time, in the 50s, it was, aha, he has seen the light and is a patriot and is allowed to have a career again. Yeah. The lead actress here is Evelyn Ankers, who had become Universal's go-to for these kinds of movies. Uh, We've previously seen her as the lead actress in The Wolfman and Ghost of Frankenstein. Uh, Since Ghost of Frankenstein, Evelyn Ankers had also appeared as the lead actress in Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. (laughs) Second build in this film is John Carradine, one of the most prolific actors in Hollywood history. Mm -hmm. Born Richmond Reed Carradine in 1906 in New York's Greenwich Village, his father was a journalist and his mother was a surgeon. His father died of tuberculosis when he was two years old, and his mother remarried to a factory owner who beat him every day just on general principle, according to Carradine. He ran away from home when he was 14 years old, Uh, stayed with his maternal uncle Peter Richmond for a time, and then traveled the country as an itinerant portrait painter. Okay. He was arrested for vagrancy, and his nose was broken when he was beaten in jail, and it never really set correctly. He started acting with a Shakespeare company in New Orleans in 1925. Uh, He did this for a little while. It was his first acting experience. In 1927, he took a job delivering a shipment of bananas to Los Angeles and started working there as a stage actor. He became drinking buddies with John Barrymore. Well, there Uh, you go. That's your way in. (laughs) Yes, this led to him becoming a voiceover narrator for Cecil B. DeMille. Um, Over the course of his career, John Carradine would become known as The Voice due to this, like, booming deep voice he had. Um, Viewers of a certain generation will remember Carradine as the voice of the owl from The Secret of Nim. Mm -hmm. He was also known as the Boulevard Bard due to his habit of walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard reciting Shakespearean sonnets. Just to himself? Yep. As a stage actor, he had been credited as Peter Richmond uh, in honor of his maternal uncle, But as a film actor, he became John Richmond after his friend John Barrymore, and finally John Carradine by 1935. By 1936, he had become a member of John Ford's stock company of actors, appearing in 1939's Stagecoach and 1940's The Grapes of Wrath. In the 1940s, Carradine began taking roles in a number of low-budget horror movies in order to fund his own touring Shakespeare company. Just up and down Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Captive Wild Woman will be the first of numerous John Carradine horror movie appearances. 
At this time, Carradine was still married to his first wife, Ardenelle, with whom he raised two sons, Bruce and David. Ardenelle had been getting illegal abortions, which eventually rendered her unable to have more children, and she and Carradine divorced in 1944. Over the course of three more marriages, he had six more sons, and of these eight, five became actors, and one became a Disney Imagineer. Uh, probably the best known of the various Carradine sons is David Carradine, who was the star of the 1970s television show Kung Fu and the two-part movie Kill Bill, where he played Bill. What's a Disney Imagineer? The guys who design the rides at okay. Disney amusement parks. Not everyone who listens to the show... Watches will... Defunct Land on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, so it's just good to... Yeah. The other male lead in this film is 39-year-old actor Milburn Stone, who had been in vaudeville for 10 years before starting his film career in 1930. His career had primarily been minor roles in Poverty Row titles, uh, B-movies, and serials. He got an abnormally large role in Captive Wild Woman because he resembled Clyde Beatty, star of Universal's 1933 circus film The Big Cage, stock footage from which is used extensively in this movie. <laughs> okay, we want to do cat people bigger and better, but still for no money. Exactly. Audiences of a certain age will know Milburn Stone best as Doc Adams on the TV show Gunsmoke, which ran from 1955 to 1975. Our title character is played by Aquanetta, and her deal requires some explanation. Okay, is she related to Aquafina? No. Okay. Aquanetta, the Venezuelan volcano, as she was credited, <laughs> okay. was a model and actress who basically made her career trading off her, quote, exotic beauty, unquote. Okay. Her actual origins are not known with certainty because most everything she told people about herself was a lie. That's the name of the game in show business, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Her story was that she was born Bernu Aquanetta to Arapaho Native Americans, and she claimed that this name meant burning fire, deep water. That name again was Bernu Aquanetta. Mm -hmm. And she claimed that her parents were killed when she was a small child, orphaning her, and then she was adopted by an artistic couple from Venezuela before leaving them to live on her own at age 15 and coming to America. The likely truth is that she was Mildred Davenport, born in 1921 in Norristown, Pennsylvania, one of six children in a poor African-American family. Her brother, Horace Davenport, was the first African-American judge in Montgomery County. She left home and moved to Spanish Harlem in New York, which is when she began passing herself off as a Venezuelan. There, she became a model at age 20, and in 1942, she was signed by Universal Pictures, inventing the orphaned Arapaho part of her story because she couldn't provide valid ID for the Screen Actors Guild. This was her third film for Universal, after Arabian Nights in 1942 and Rhythm of the Islands earlier in 1943. The posters to her films, uh, which of course would be in color, depicted 
her as kind of an exotic but essentially white ethnicity. Uh, the movies themselves are in black and white. And if you are African-American but of like a light enough skin tone, in black and white, depending on the exposure, you can look white perfectly. But on the posters, it's kind of like uh, ambiguous. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to pass her off as being like Latino, maybe, but like light-skinned. Okay. Because she's Venezuelan. Sure. It's sort of like... I suspect what was going on with her, I don't know this for sure, is that she was trying to pass herself off as, like, an ethnicity that was likely to get her more work uh, in, in, you know, more attention than being Blackwood in the 1940s. But, like, she couldn't, you know, just say she was white. She wasn't, like, quite able to pass all that way. Mm -hmm. So then it's, like, trying to find an ethnicity that will explain how you look and is, like, exotic, and you can, like, play off that exoticism, but, like, is still, like, sexy and attractive and and high-class enough to, like, get into white spaces. And I don't know this for sure. My guess behind why Venezuelan might just be because the early 40s were when South American culture, Carmen Miranda, you know, Samba, all of that was coming to America for the first time and picking up popularity. So yeah. that's that's a guess. Okay. Also appearing in the film is Martha McVicker, an 18-year-old in her first credited film appearance after an uncredited one in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. She would become more famous under the name Martha Vickers when she appeared in Warner Brothers' The Big Sleep in 1946, playing the younger, promiscuous, drug-addicted, missing sister of Lauren Bacall's character. Faye Helm, who was Jenny in The Wolfman and Margaret Ingston in Night Monster, also appears alongside character actors Vince Barnett and Paul Fix. Finally, as the ape in this movie, we have stuntman Crash Corrigan, the enterprising owner of movie ranch Corriganville and his own ape suit, who we've seen previously in 1940's The Ape and 1942's Dr. Renault's Secret. Okay, cool. This guy's pretty good. <laughs> Of, of, of the ape actors, yes. That we've seen, yes. Mm-hmm. Captive Wild Woman was released June 4th, 1943. It received poor reviews from critics, but it was financially successful enough that it became the first in a trilogy of films about these same characters. Great. Are those also horror movies? Yes. So we'll be watching them. Yep. Great. Jungle Woman is the second one, and Jungle Captive is the third one. They've hit a theme here, and they're going for it. So how are we watching this movie? You can find Captive Wild Woman on DVD in the Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive. It is not currently available to stream. Dang, such a popular title. Not available to stream. (laughs) Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, find yourself a copy of that box set. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Captive Wild Woman from 1943, directed by Edward Dimitrik. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Captive Wild Woman from 1943, directed by Edward Dimitrik, for the most part. About half the movie, I'd say. Yeah. So, I don't want to say that this deserves a trigger warning or anything like that. It's set in a circus, and you see whips taken out towards lions and tigers, and they're made to do tricks, and it's very aggressive, and it's what I would call animal abuse, though at the time it's just training or taming the animal. If and I just in... found that like kind of upsetting to watch over the period of 60 minutes. So, hey, if, if that kind of thing upsets you, just a heads up. Yeah, if you're an animal lover, don't watch this movie. Yeah. This movie's a lot. There's There's oh. a lot going on here. Yeah. That needs to be unpacked. Um, I'm going to start by saying that before the break, I briefly mentioned that Milburn Stone had been cast in his role due to his resemblance to Clyde Beatty, who was the star of an earlier movie called The Big Cage, from which this movie took stock footage. That is an understatement. Every single shot of animals, with the exception of Crash Corrigan in his ape suit, is from the big cage. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every single shot of animal taming is from the big cage. Most of the, like, B-plot of this movie is just the plot of the big cage. A lot of this movie is people just basically watching the big cage, like, reacting to footage from the big cage as if they're in the same room with it, and then them giving a reaction shot. That's most of the running time of this movie. Yeah. So I thought it would be at least educational <laughs> to briefly mention the cultural significance of Clyde Beatty, who I was not expecting to be as important to this movie as it turns out he kind of is. Well, here on Scream Scene, we always aim to be educational. Right. So go ahead. So Clyde Beatty is what you think of when you think of a lion tamer. Like, the first image that comes to your head when you think lion tamer. That stereotypical image of, like, the dude in the jodhpurs and the boots with, like, a gun and a whip and, like, a chair. That's Clyde Beatty. He invented that. His big gimmick as a lion tamer was what he called the fighting act, where he was essentially appearing to, like, fight the animals in the cage. He was extremely famous in the 1910s, the 1920s, the 1930s. Uh, he was still famous after that. Like, he was famous for a very, very long time, to the point where he defined what a lion tamer was in pop culture. The Big Cage is not necessarily a movie he's in so much as it's a movie about him in which he plays himself. It's got a plot based around him getting a rematch with a lion that real in real life mauled him earlier and put him in the hospital. And the movies are showing that like he can tame this lion. So that's that. That's the big cage. That's Clyde Beatty. And it's I kind of like Rocky, but with lions. Right. Uh, so I mention all that because, well, I'm going to come back to that. <laughs> so the actual story of Captive Wild Woman is very crazy. It has a lot of twists and turns. I'm going to try to summarize it best I can. It certainly, like, aims and achieves the wild part of its title. Yeah. Basically, the movie is like a 50-50 split between a circus story about an animal trainer named Fred Mason 
attempting to put on a mixed act between lions and tigers. And no bears, though. No. And that plot is basically all stock footage from the big cage. The other 50% of the movie is a mad science plot about turning an ape into a woman. So, Fred Mason has just returned from wherever in the world you can get tigers, lions, and apes from, generic jungle land, uh, to America with a bunch of animals for his circus. His girlfriend is Beth Coleman, who is also the secretary for the circus, I think. And one of the animals that Fred has brought back is an ape named Chila, played by Ray Corrigan in an ape suit. And basically, Chila is just very smart and has, you know, taken to Fred very well. And, you know, she's going to be a great part of the act because she's going to be able to easily be trained to do tricks because she's very smart. Meanwhile, Beth has a sister, Dorothy, a younger sister. And Dorothy actually performs in the circus as well. And she is losing weight and she had a fainting spell. So Beth has been taking her to doctors who have said it's a glandular problem. So you should go see this expert in glands, Dr. Sigmund Walters. Always with the glands. Yeah. And the glands are like 1940s version of, like, DNA. Like, now every movie does this same shit with DNA. Yeah. So she takes her to Dr. Walter's sanitarium. And Dr. Walter's is John Carradine. And John Carradine is perfect, but I will get to that after the summary. She reads a little bit about his accomplishments before going in to see him. Oof. And it's wild. He's basically famous for... Eugenics. Yes, um, he's a gland expert who can do anything with glands, so he can cure any deformity. Um, he believes that glands are the source of, like, all medical problems, and he is, uh, into race improvement, whatever that means. That's your first sign something's wrong. And, um, he, the, the, this journal also mentions there being 48 chromosomes in the human body, which is hilarious. So she goes in to see him. And explains Dorothy's problem. And he's like, yep, I can absolutely cure this. Everything's good. He's super charming. She's very taken with him. So she invites him to go tour the circus. When Dr. Walters arrives at the circus and gets shown around by Fred and everybody, and they all watch stock footage, uh, he also gets introduced to Chila, the ape, and is shown how intelligent the ape is. And he's like, hmm, would you ever sell that ape? And they're like, no. He goes back to his mad scientist laboratory, and him and his nurse, Miss Strand, who is played by Faye Helm, uh, are discussing how all of their experimental subjects die. Every time they try to take, you know, the glands of a rabbit and stuff them in a guinea pig, the, the guinea pig just dies. It's, who knows? <laughs> and so Walters comes to the conclusion that this is because they need, like, a bigger, smarter animal that has, like, more will to live. So he's going to go steal the ape, And they're going to take the glands out of Dorothy, basically cross the ape with Dorothy, to turn the ape into a woman. And the way they're going to do this is some shit. Um, So so they don't actually (laughs) say a lot of the words I'm about to use, but this is what they're talking about. So he's going to take an ovarian cyst that Dorothy has, that apparently is secreting massive amounts of, like, Estrogen. Estrogen, like, for some reason. And he's going to take that estrogen from that cyst and put it in the ape. And that's going to turn the ape into a woman. Yeah. What he does say is that Dorothy has an excess of sex hormones 
And he's going to take that yeah, and, and he, put it in. He calls it a follicular cyst, but like, yeah, he's talking yeah. about an ovarian cyst. They never use the word ovary. So anyways, at this point, Nurse Strand is like, uh, uh, that's a terrible like idea. I am not okay with this. But she doesn't have much choice in the matter. Walters gets a disgruntled circus employee who got fired for basically abusing uh, Chila to steal the ape for him. And we kind of get our, well, not our first clues, but our biggest indication of just how ice cold Dr. Walters is <laughs> when after stealing the ape for him, you know, this circus hand is like, well, you know, where's my payment? And uh, Walters basically just pushes him in front of the ape and lets the ape kill him and just kind of watches. Yeah, the camera stays on Walters' face as we hear screaming and he just has like this sly grin on his face and then he looks down as you hear the body crumple. Mm -hmm. It is chilling. Yeah. So the next day, this is reported in the newspapers as basically the ape getting like, free, like, everyone assumes the ape has escaped yeah. and killed this circus hand. Specifically, the method of murder was that it dug its claws, its fingernails, into his the back of his neck and severed his spinal cord. Which is quite the... Quite the thing, yeah. Yes. So now... Like, I, I don't know anything about, like, how apes attack, but I always just figured it was a lot of blunt force. Yeah, bludgeoning damage. Not yeah, not slashing or, or piercing. Piercing damage, exactly. Except for maybe the teeth, but this is specifically the hands. It's such like a hands. weirdly specific detail to say severed the spinal cord. To Anyways. Yeah. So Walters has got his ape now, and him and Miss Strand are going to do the operation, where they're going to transfer the hormones from Dorothy to the ape. They start to see the ape transform, you know, do the old lapse dissolve thing into a woman. Miss Strand is like, you know, every subject we've done this with, like, died. Like, you're taking a bunch of human physical characteristics and pumping them into an animal that has animal instincts. It's not, it's going to go crazy, and it's not going to be, like, stable. And you're mad. Dr. Walters is like, hmm, you have a good point there. It would need a human brain in order to stabilize it. <laughs> And I can't kill Dorothy by taking her brain, because I need her for the hormones. So if only I had a troublesome woman who I need to get rid of right in front. Oh, you, Miss Strand! And then he takes her brain out. Well, her cerebrum, which is the part of the brain that holds your logic centers and memories, and puts it in the ape. So... I'm not talking, by the way, a lot about the circus plot, because it has nothing to do with anything, and I basically, like, everything about the circus plot, I told you already. Yeah. He's, Mason is trying to do an act. Anyways. It's fine. He has now taken this ape and turned it into a woman, who is played by Aquanetta. And he comes up with the name Paula Dupree for her, out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't know where that And basically hypnotizes her or something. He Vulcan mind melts her. That's basically exactly what he does. He Same says, phrases. My mind to your mind. My thoughts to your thoughts. You will do as I tell you. And, uh, yeah, turn, basically says, like, you're under my control. You're Paula Dupree. And starts, like, introducing her as, like, a patient of his. That's how he explains who she is. And I just want to take a moment. We're going to go into this more depth later, I'm sure. But I want to just take a moment here to stop and just bring everyone's attention to the light-skinned African-American woman who is passing as uh, an Arapaho indigenous person or Venezuelan, depending on who's asking, 
who has been, in this movie, turned into a human from an ape. Yep. In the black and white film, uh, her skin, like, she's light-skinned, so she doesn't read maybe as dark as some African-American actresses would. Um, But, like, I mean, if you know she's African-American, you can tell watching the movie, right? So he starts taking her around, and specifically... He's interested what would happen if he took her to the circus and introduced her to Fred Mason again. Like, what would her reactions be? And this is the one part, well, the one part of the movie where it doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> this is the part where... <laughs> Tell me, what is the other part? <laughs> this, is the, this is the part of the movie where uh, I got off the train for a moment. Because <laughs> he's... Why does, why does Paula have Sheila's memories? He put... Strand, Miss Strand's brain in her. She should have Miss Strand's uh, memories. No, because this is a test to see if she does have Sheila's Right, memories. but she does. She does. Anyways. So she takes her to the... Um, the science is not sound in this movie. No. The science in this movie is wild. So it must have been those two extra chromosomes. So <laughs> he takes her to the circus. And as he's doing this, um, Fred Mason is engaged with trying out this lion-tiger mixed act. He's doing this act, and the reason he's doing this act, even though his job is just to train the animals and also to catch them from Junglelandia, is this circus has been trying to book Beedy, and they can't get him. So then Mason's just going to do the act instead, but it's actually Beedy doing the act in this footage, because it's... Anyways, bit so, of an Ouroboros yes. so in the stock footage, uh, Clyde Beatty gets attacked by the animals. So Paula goes into the cage with Fred and Bella Lugosi stares at the animals and they all back off. Yeah, it should be said that she does not have any lines. No, Paula never speaks once in the movie, which is another problem. So everyone's reaction to this is, holy shit. I think we can do the act with her. Um, and yeah, so they train for presumably weeks with her. And all she does is she stands outside the cage and stares at the animals. And this sort of intense glaring is about the most acting that Aquanetta is asked to do here. And this enables Mason to tame the animals, even though it's all uh, Paula's hypnotism. So... Another great example of <laughs> woman doing all the work and man taking all the credit. So we get closer to it's going to be the, you know, the night of the big show. And they've even got her in, like, a skimpy circus outfit. And I'm sitting here going, like, A, how is, sh- how is that a good show? That she's just standing there on the outside, like, glaring at the animals. But also, how did they do this many weeks of rehearsals and no one noticed she doesn't talk, apparently? <laughs> Anyways. She only talks off screen. Right. They even, like, talk about, oh, is Paula going to be in the ring with you? No, 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 no. That would be absurd. A woman in the ring? Well, I think it's because the owner of the circus is a very reasonable human who wants to minimize danger to his animals, to his performers, to his circus, you know, that kind of thing. And Fred Mason is the stupidest man to walk the earth, and his reaction to everyone being like, Maybe that's a bad idea on a succession of ideas, like putting 
the lines and the tigers together. Him doing the act instead of getting a real performer. Uh, getting this girl to come in on the act who nobody knows. Uh, all of his ideas. Everyone goes, that's absurdly dangerous. You shouldn't do that. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. Yeah. That was basically, that was his reaction to the ape being missing. Was like, eh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Fred Mason is an idiot. Anyways, so on the night of the sort of dress rehearsal, Beth comes to congratulate Fred on, you know, job well done. And this is, I guess, the first time Paula's ever seen Fred and Beth together. And she's jealous. So she goes back to her room, her, like, changing room. And she tears up the place like she's Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> and here's where we have, you know, another moment where we have to stop and pause. Because, as you might expect from this genre of movie, her intense emotions are going to cause her to change back into sort of a, a half-woman, half-ape type figure. You know, if you've seen Island of Lost Souls, you know this. Like, the beast flesh always crawls back. Like, Dr. Walters should have read... Dr. Moreau's papers, he would have known this was going to happen. But the way that the movie first indicates the change is that Paula's skin gets darker. Yep. That her skin basically turns like an identifiably African-American tone in the black and white film. Yeah. That's the first sign that she's becoming an animal again. So, whew. Woof. So anyways, she turns into a budget version of the Wolfman, but she's an ape. And goes after Beth. And she climbs into Beth's apartment just as she's breaking in. You know, Beth screams and the landlady comes in and is like, what's all this? Ah! And then gets attacked by Paula and gets her spinal cord severed by Paula's claws. Which I guess is why we needed such a weirdly specific way of killing a person so that it could happen here too. And then now that the landlady's dead, rather than kill Beth, who she's here to kill, Paula just leaves because there's... 20 minutes more in this movie. Beth starts going like, hmm, you know, what? So she goes to Fred and is like, I think, basically, that Paula is Chila. And Fred's like, that's crazy. And, you know, Beth is right. And Fred is an idiot. But I'm on Fred's side here only in that if someone in real life came to me and said that was their conclusion based on the evidence, I would also not believe them. Beth's sister, Dorothy, remember her, calls Beth on the phone and is like, hey, so this this guy's crazy, and this place is terrible, and you need to get me out. And, you know, then Walters uh, cuts the phone line just as she screams. So Beth is like, well, time to go save my sister and be the hero of the story. So Beth goes to the sanitarium. Meanwhile, the circus is doing their big, big show. It's the big night of the premiere. Now, unfortunately, Paula has reverted back into an ape. And she's down in Walter's secret lab. And Walter's is like, oh, you know, fuck, you're, you caused me a lot of trouble here. Now i got to go and get a bunch more glands and cerebrums. And God, <laughs> it's all your fault for falling in love with somebody. It's certainly not my fault for playing God. Without Paula, can Fred do the act? Does anyone watching the movie care? Uh, to top it all off, there's a, a thunderstorm coming in, which makes it super dangerous, because the animals will freak out from the thunder and the lightning. But is Fred worried? No, because he's an idiot. So Fred's doing the act, completely divorced from the story. Meanwhile, back in the plot, 
Beth goes to Dr. Walters and she's like, where's my sister? And Dr. Walters is like, oh, yeah, she's right downstairs. Don't worry about it. And takes her down to the lab. And she's like, what the fuck is going on here? And he, oh, well, you know, I'm just taking the, the, you know, the ovarian cyst out of your sister and putting it in this ape and turning her into a woman. Beth's like, you're crazy. That'll never work. And Walters is like, you know, someone said that to me before. And now that I think about it, I still need another cerebrum from someone. So, and it's like, oh my God, how is she going to get out of this? Because the hero, quote unquote, you know, the male protagonist, is off at the circus in a thunderstorm. And his act has predictably gone terribly wrong because the thunderstorm has caused the like main tent to collapse and the you know audience is running out screaming and all the cats are mauling him and it's just it's it's <laughs> all the horror the humanity so how is how's beth gonna act out of this well um dr walters has paula now reverted to ape form in a cage and you know he's taking some stuff out of uh dorothy and he's sell- he's telling beth like Oh, you know, that ape, that ape would kill me if it got the chance. And then he turns his back on Beth and the ape. So Beth opens the cage and the ape murders the hell out of Dr. Walters. And then it comes back into the room. And it's like, is the, is the ape going to murder Beth? No, because that ape has a circus show to be in. So <laughs> the ape goes back to the circus. And our heroic lead, you would think is rescued from certain death at the hands of the big cats he's abused by Sheila the ape, who loves him. And she's taking him out of the cage, and everyone's, you know, like, oh my god, that ape rescued him. The cops show up, and they shoot the shit out of that ape, and she dies. Twas beauty killed the beast. The end. We do see Beth get Dorothy out. Yes. Like, you know, so yeah. that, that, that thing is wrapped up. Yeah. But, oh my god, what... What a movie. I, I'm not a big fan of this movie. But, like, the, uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how to feel about this movie, Sarah. Yeah. Because, on the one hand, I have a lot of derision for a movie where 50%, I'm sure, is stock footage. Yeah. To the point where, like, they couldn't even, you know, they cast Milburn Stone because he looked like Clyde Beatty, but they couldn't even get away with it, right? Like... The whole reason, you know, everyone knows that movie stars don't do their own stunts, right? Yeah. But part of the suspension of disbelief in watching a movie is, you know, even though on some level you know that in the close-ups it's William Shatner, and when they cut to the wide shot in a Star Trek episode, that's not William Shatner, you you want to be into the story enough that your brain just smooths that over. And instead, that's just, that's all Captain Kirk, right? Yeah. But there's so much fucking Clyde Beatty in this movie that there's a notice at the start of the movie being like, the producers wish to thank Clyde Beatty. <laughs> like, it's so it and, and, and making it part of the plot that they couldn't get Beatty is like drawing attention to like, it's insane. That whole element of the movie is insane. And then, of course, there's the fact that because of the nature of all that footage of it being this like old timey circus lion taming shit. It's super upsetting for animal lovers. So, like, you were super upset for most of this movie. Yeah. I was chanting kill him (laughs) at the end when they started mauling the dude. And if you're not the type of person who is upset by old-timey animal cruelty, the rest of this movie is still super upsetting. 
I mean, I've kind of touched on the problematic racial elements here, and I forgot to mention that Miss Strand, before her untimely death, does mention that, just offhandedly, that Dr. Walter's ultimate goal in his experiments was to create a race of supermen to conquer the world. Yeah, just like, Doctor, I've worked with you for 13 years, and I've been with you so much. It reminded me of the, um, the moment in Community where the blonde chick is like, um, I'll excuse racism, but I can't stand for animal cruelty. Right, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, she's there and she's like, you know, I know we've been working towards the creation of a race of supermen for all these years, but I won't have human blood on my hands. Like, I mean, I will give her a bit of credit. John Carradine is very charming. Yes, he is. But incredibly chilling. John, um, yeah, he is incredible. He is the perfect person, I think, to sort of pick up the mad scientist mantle uh, ever since Lionel Atwell's fall from grace? To me, like, for this entire film, there's two movies here, which we've kind of already touched on. So basically a re-release of the 1933 The Big Cage, which by nature is not horror, which is just like a thing. I will say, just as to throw a bone to the animal lovers who would be upset here, like, it's stock footage, right? So at least like this movie wasn't harming animals in the making of it. They didn't, like, go and harm a bunch of animals again. They're yeah. reusing footage that already existed. Like, that's probably the best use of that kind of footage. Anyways. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then the second movie here is a mad scientist eugenics horror flick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm totally with you about how Caradine is taking up this mantle. To me, it's almost like he's bringing new life mm-hmm. into what is kind of a tired subgenre. Mm-hmm. Um, because Lionel Atwell is great, and he's fun as he hams it up, but there's something about Carradine and his serious, straight delivery that actually makes it scary. Yes. This is the first time in a long time a mad scientist has been scary instead of just, like, a rote plot device. Yeah. Because Carradine delivers all this dialogue as if we're supposed to be taking it seriously. And when he gets really calm, that's when he starts being threatening. Like, he has two modes— I'm charming Dr. Walters, and I'm going to murder you. And, like, he is really effective. He's really, really good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was kind of surprised by that. I don't really know why, because, like, he, he does have a good reputation as an actor, but I think just when someone has a reputation for having done so many B-movies, um, you kind of think, like, oh, so they, they must kind of suck. But, like, he's good. He's really good. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's terrifying. And, and that was the thing, was as much as I can't respect a movie that is half stock footage, the parts that aren't are a really effective horror movie and really kind of go the distance in a way that's super surprising for 1943. Like, I do not understand how this movie got past the code. Like... Yeah, if you look back to Murders in the Room Morgue, to Island of Lost Souls, to what was the movie banned in the UK? Mad, Mad Monster, Monster. Where they're all invoking the same, like, cross-species, cross-racial mm-hmm. experimentation. And the most recent one, Mad Monster, being banned in the UK. And now this movie is just going for it? Yeah. Like, they're not, like, they're explicit in Mm -hmm. the blood transfusions and all of that. It's, it's 
surprising, and if the, not shocking. And the plot isn't suggesting that the ape wants to fuck this dude. Like, that is the plot. Like, uh, Carradine makes it obvious when he is berating her for ruining all of his plans. When he says, like, it was your animal instincts. You know, she came between you and a mate. Like, this is a movie, like, about stuff that you're not supposed to make movies about. Like, yeah, I, I, I would not be surprised at this kind of content in a pre-code film. But how this is happening in the Cody era, like, I don't understand. Like, yeah, they don't say ovary or they never say estrogen. I don't know. Was just the censor distracted by the, like, solid hour of lion taming footage? Maybe. Maybe the fact that, like, it was just basically a re-release of The Big Cage and, like, low-budget B-horror film. Because, like, we've seen these sets before. Like, they spent no money on this. No. Um, it, maybe that just made them go, like, yeah, whatever. Like, it, it helped them kind of slide under. Yeah, I, you, the only thing I can think is that this movie was so cheap and, you know, the subject matter was so eye-rolling that just no one paid it any attention, right? Like, oh, yeah, another cheap guerrilla mad scientist movie. We get five of these a year, like, whatever. But, yeah, I really don't know how to feel because I really like the parts of it that are a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I just don't care about everything else. I will give the movie some credit in that the male protagonist is useless. You could you could cut Mason out of the story and not change much. He's, mm-hmm. he's totally inconsequential. He doesn't save the girl at the end. She's the one... Like, Beth saves the day. Um, and then when, she, you know she has a bit of threat. It's Chila who saves her and it's Chila who saves Fred. And what's kind of super ironic is if you look at the, the advertising for Captive Wild Woman, like the poster, the poster is Chila, Ray Corrigan in an ape suit, like holding Aquanetta in her like circus outfit in like the kind of like forbidden planet, like classic monster holding a fainted woman thing they're the same character, and the end of the movie is the ape holding the unconscious man. Yeah. Right? Like, so I'll give it a little, like, I don't think that's on purpose. I don't think anyone writing this movie was like, ah, girl power. <laughs> it just happened to be the consequence of, well, he can't save the day. He's trapped over here in the stock footage. Yeah. I agree with what you're saying, and I, like, just want to, like, further underline that, like, don't give this movie credit for having a lady and the lady ape be the protagonists of the film, because I don't think they're doing it purposefully. I don't think they deserve credit for it, especially when they have so many other... Like, we're saying, we're terming it problematic, but let's just call it what it is, racism. Yeah, it's... The thing about it is it's just... It's so weird. Yeah. Like, there's there's racism you can see and look at, and be like, aha, racism. And then there's stuff like this where you're just like, what is, like where the, the thought processes are so divorced from your own mm-hmm. that your your brain can't quite wrap its head around it, right? Like, yeah, just all the racial implications in this movie, like this hierarchy of race that exists in this movie is is sure is something, And basically. how it's directly related to the color of your skin. yeah. And, like, just the way that that interplays with, like, the actual actress, who, again, should be stressed, gets no lines. 
in this movie, title character, and, like... I feel like I can't even judge her acting, because she's hardly given anything, and it's not a case of, like, well, Karloff wasn't giving it anything. Like, no, Aquanetta is not given anything to do. No. She stands outside the cage and glares. Mm -hmm. She smashes up her room, then she gets some makeup put on her face, and she... Goes into goes through a window into someone's apartment. Yeah, that's it. That's that's her part. Yeah. Uh, with no dialogue at all. Yeah, it it's just it's so bizarre and just the way that her real life stuff of like passing and that like the way that interacts with like what this movie's doing where it's like directly drawing a line between blackness and animal. Yeah, being an animal, being yeah. a gorilla, like is just so. Yeah, it's a lot. So there's that, and then there's... So there's all the stuff that's bad. But on the other hand, like, even if the female protagonist thing isn't on purpose, when you're watching so many of these in a row, it is a nice change of pace. Yeah. Uh, And Carradine is so good, and the horror stuff actually is horrific, and the scary stuff is actually scary... Um, like, this is the first Universal movie with some teeth in it for a while. Because the Universal movies have kind of just been relying on, like, Hey, hey, remember remember Frankenstein's monster? Remember the Wolfman? Remember how you liked them? Here they are again. Like, yeah. they've just been doing that for a Or, remember the mummy? Like, here's ten minutes of the mummy again. <laughs> like, they've just been doing that for so long that, like, yeah, I was shocked at the the teeth in this movie. So, it's it's hard to reconcile the parts of this movie that I really liked with the parts that were very troublesome. Uh, It's like, how do you regard a movie that is literally half good? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we rank it. I guess we're gonna, yeah, just have to figure figure that out. Mm -hmm. I have a suspicion that in terms of, you know, the question of do you give the movie credit for what it's doing good or do you judge the movie by what it's doing bad... I have this sneaking suspicion you and I have come down on opposite sides of that coin flip. I, I don't know. Um, I've been trying really hard to think about media holistically. Mm. So I've tried to consider both those sides together. So where are you looking on the list? So this is just kind of where my gut took me. Mm. But part of why I started looking here was the last Universal flick we saw was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also had half the movie was good, half the movie was bad. <laughs> yeah. Not bad in the same way, but... Um, so I felt like this movie could contend with Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman at number 33. Mm-hmm. Then I made my way down the list, and I kind of stopped around... Number 41, Dead Men Walk, because similar to how that film took uh, an interesting take on Dracula and that formula, I felt Carradine, like I said, brought a bit of a new take, breathed in some new life into this mad scientist trope. So to me, yeah, my range is 33 to 41. Okay, this this isn't going to be as arduous as I thought it might be, as much of a battle, because your range is entirely inside mine. Oh, interesting. So, made my way down to The Man Who Changed His Mind at number 25. Sure. Which, the sticking point I keep coming on with that movie is it's a lot of fun, and I really like it, 
but it can't compare to any horror movie that has teeth, in my opinion. I worked my way down, and the lowest I got was down at 47, because I stopped at Murders in the Rue Morgue and went, ah, this is a movie that tried to do the exact same thing and failed. Somehow, in the pre-code era, Murders in the Rue Morgue got more shit for this and had to compensate by throwing in a bunch of pastoral college kids at the park nonsense to balance it out. A bunch of comic relief. Tons of comic relief. There's not really comic relief in Captive Wild Woman. Like, even Vince Barnett, who is always, like, a comic relief character, doesn't really do his shtick to, like, the, the, the same degree he usually does. He's mostly just here so he can look like a character in one of the stock footages. So I thought this movie succeeded where Murders in the Room Org failed, and I guess the secret to that was just burying all of your content under a bunch of stock footage from another movie. Mm-hmm. So that was my range, was 25 to 47. So I think we can look basically just at your range, because it's inside mine. Okay. So you were saying... Um, 33 to 41. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman to Dead Men Walk. This is, this is really tough for me. Because on the one hand, like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, when I think of that movie, I think of a movie where nothing really happens until the last, like, five minutes. And that's what you've been sitting here for the whole time. Mm-hmm. This movie, shit's happening all the time. Like, basically, if you don't like mad science, we've got some fucking animal cruelty here for you. And if you don't like that, we've got some mad science for you. There are two types of audience in this world, Sarah. <laughs> animal cruelty lovers and mad science lovers. So, which one are you, listener? So it's tough. Like, that makes me want to put this above Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. But then I look at, like, some stuff that's below there, and I'm like, is this really better than Fall of the House of Usher? Is this better than, um, you know, Phantom of the Convent? Is this better than, uh, like, Orlac's Hand? Like, I'm not sure. The movie that catches my attention in your range is Dr. Renault's Secret, Mm -hmm. because it's also a turn an ape into a human movie. Yeah, and I think... Probably because Dr. Renault's Secret is dealing with the fact that it's adapting something and it has kind of that baggage. Captive Wild Woman has more teeth and mm-hmm. more leeway, clearly, with <laughs> what they, the fuck they do to go further. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think Captive Wild Woman is a better horror movie than Dr. Renault's Secret. Yeah, I think Dr. Renault's Secret had a better, like, ape-man character, like its exploration of its central monster was better, but Captive Wild Woman has by far the better mad scientist. As much as I am <laughs> loath to put down George Zuko, like, How listen. How could you do this to him? George Zuko was just, you know, we had Lionel Atwell, and then it feels like George Zuko was just a stopgap between the end of Lionel Atwell and the coming of John Carradine. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll counter your point about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm. And I'll do this by bringing up a point you made earlier. Okay. That Universal has been relying on the same old shtick for a very long time. And now they are kind of put into a corner and forced to do something different to cash in on cat people. Right. And this is what they come up with? Some, like, bonkers wild bullshit? Yeah, the fact that... That, that's a, like, I don't know, honestly, like, this is my overall problem with the whole movie. I don't know whether to hate or admire this movie for the fact that the way it, like, looked at cat people 
this like movie whose power was in like the shadows and in the things you don't see and the the things in the back of your mind that might worry you or trouble you when you turn out the lights and it was like how do we defeat this and it's like i know we're gonna graft some sex hormones into this ape uh but (laughs) conversely kind of the only reason why captive wild woman has teeth is because of john carradine yes that's it yeah he's giving he's making you believe it right like if you didn't believe that character this would be another piece of schlock like monogram movie right but he's here making it feel real so to me that's why i would put this below frankenstein meets the wolfman because sure universal they've come up with this script but it's also fairly tropey and it really only works because of john carradine's acting Mm. so goes below I think where I want to put this, based on our discussion, is at number 37, above Dr. Renault's Secret and below Phantom of the Convent, which, like, is probably a better movie than this is. Like, has, you know, a unified artistic vision behind it and isn't just like, well, what can we make out of this (laughs) old movie that we have lying around? Write write a script around this, remaking this movie. Um, Cool. So I think that's a good spot for it. Do you agree? I would agree. Um, yeah, El Fantasma del Convento was a surprise hit with us, mm-hmm. and it it's really good. It's real good. Yeah. So I'm, I wish it was actually available on DVD somewhere that wasn't Mexico, basically. Yeah. Just means we got to go to Mexico, Ben. I, I guess. So entering the list at number 37 is Captive Wild Woman from 1943. Directed by Edward Dimitrik. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit it through our website, or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast@gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on those services, or by telling a friend about us, whether that's through social media or just over the water cooler at work. Another way that you can help out the show is by heading to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. And that helps us pay our hosting fees and uh, helps us put the time and research into this show that we do. At higher levels, you get regular bonus content. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing horror-adjacent movies once per month as an extra episode. So for example, we might look at Revenge of the Zombies, which (laughs) stars John Carradine, and is a horror comedy sequel to King of the Zombies, a horror comedy. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we're going to Paris. Okay. The Paris Opera House. Oh. It's the 1943 Technicolor remake of Phantom of the Opera, starring Claude Rains. And a bunch of other people. And a bunch of other people. Uh, And this is made in America, 
right? Yes, so yes, not yes, like yes. made in Nazi-occupied France. What? No, 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 no. This is a Universal Pictures movie made using the exact same sets from the silent Phantom of the Opera because they kept those around because they were so expensive. Yes, they still have them around. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, at least this cloud rains. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. No animals were harmed in the production of this episode of Scream Scene.